You're listening to the Scottish Football Forums podcast, the home of Scottish football banter. Hi, welcome to episode 10, season 10 of the Scottish Football Forums podcast. Um, I'm good, John, and, and we're having our guest special. It's not a footballer, um, it's not a coach. But we have an actor and St Johnson fan, Colin McCready. Colin, thank you very much for agreeing to come on. Hi, John. How are you? Yeah, we're all good here. Um, more importantly, how are you? Yeah, fine. Yeah, stuck at home, obviously. <laughs> yeah, it's um, a bit of difficult times. And as we record, it's not um, been long before but, uh, since uh, Boris Johnson just spoke to the Parliament about measures in England. Um Nicholas Sturgeon will have some later. Um, so how, how have you been um, affected by the whole COVID situation? Uh, obviously, as an actor, the, basically my industry completely shut down for like four or five months. Um, obviously, theatres are all still shut and by the looks of things, they'll be shut for another six months. Film and TV started slowly to go back. Um, you know, in Scotland... Um, Lights like River City's gone back. Is a series called Vigil that's started filming again, but basically it's just finishing up jobs that were were already shooting, sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So long term, it's not very good. Um, yeah. But you know, if you can't go to your work, there's still work. Uh, I actually did one good thing. I did was I, I did do a job in lockdown. I did a a play that became a film. So it was a, a play. Well, what probably would have been a play, but it ended up being a film, so it was called Miraculous, and it was based on a novel called The Fallen Rise of the Miraculous Vespers. There's about an 80s, a forgotten 80s Scottish band. So that was a job from home. So basically I took over my daughter's bedroom for Yeah, I read about that. <laughs> and I had to get all the equipment, and basically we were rehearsing and acting on Zoom while filming ourselves at the same time. So it was quite surreal, but it ended up with a 50-minute film at the end of it, So, which is actually really good. Uh, but none of us met at all during filming of it, which was surreal. Yeah, that is a, that is a strange thing, you know, um, filming from home. Um, it's not something that we ever thought you could uh, be done, but um, at least you've managed to get something out, which is more than Yay. what some people have been it, able to do. Yeah, no, no, I was lucky to get, like, a few weeks' work, which was good. Um, and obviously it was quite a technical challenge doing it from home. And uh, obviously you have the sound, you have lighting, um, you then have to film. We're filming in 4K and then you've got to transfer it and upload it all. So it became almost like, and you have continuity issues of, I was filming in my daughter's bedroom, so I had to throw her out of the bedroom and make sure this, it was always the same. Because we did like one scene at a time over like two weeks. Uh-huh. Uh, so it was more like TV, but you're doing it from home. So no, it was good, but... It does, it's not the same as going out and being in the same room as people. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, you, you've mentioned obviously theatres um, shutting. The, it it doesn't look good for um, panto season. Um, I think we can. It's fair to say that will be scrapped this year. How big a blow is is that? I mean, I don't know if you had anything lined up for um, panto season this year, but the industry in a whole, it's a bit worrying times. Well, it certainly is in Scotland because uh, at Christmas time with Panto and Christmas shows, that is the point where most actors and technicians and crew work. So basically, you know, because every theatre pretty much puts on a Panto or a Christmas show, 
and also they tend to have bigger casts than normal plays, and they run for longer. So it is the time when most actors earn a lot of money. Well, I don't mean a lot of money, but they're guaranteed maybe a couple of months' work and a couple of weeks' money. I last I was up in Pilocchi last year playing Scrooge in a Christmas Carol, um, which wasn't a panto, but it was a Christmas show, and it's just unbelievable that you know a year later the theatre's sitting empty and there's going to be nothing on. Um, you know, it just seems like a lifetime away that I was in Pilocchi for two months going to the pub every night and playing Scrooge. <laughs> uh, it's just, it literally seems like a different world and it's just, it's really bad because there's no work, there's no work for people, there's no money and obviously with the furlough closing, you know, um, I don't know what's going to happen. Yeah, it's uh, it's worrying times. I mean, we were half joking that um, you know, we could maybe say to the kids this year that um, Christmas is cancelled because Santa's caught COVID. But um, it's you know, in all seriousness, it's not um, it's not good. It's not good at all. I mean, panto season is something that a lot of um, um, people look look forward to. Not just kids, by the way, ad, um, adults yeah. as well. Um, like a day at the panto. Yeah, and it's uh, yeah, it's just it's just really depressing more than anything, and. It's just worrying for people not earning money. Um, and, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. You know, I, you know, luckily have a wife who has a has a good job. So, you know, but if people don't have that, um, you know, you, you just don't know what's going to happen. People are going to have to walk away from the industry. You know, but I don't know if there's any jobs for them even to walk away to. Yeah. And then the other side, um, one of your loves, um, you won't be able to get back to St. Joyce anytime soon, but lots of things. I mean, after, um, no, the weekend, the weekend before, you had two test events at Pataudry and, uh, and uh, uh, Ross County. Um, they then went back to the no test events at all, and now it's very much looking like there's not going to be any crowds in, certainly this side of the year, and maybe even um, beyond mm-hmm. that. I think the thing is, and I'm sure people will joke about this, but you could probably have every game in Edinburgh Park safely socially distanced. <laughs> two seats between everyone. And that's even when the old firm come, because, you know, we probably only get about five, 6,000 for those games. So, you know, um, I am missing it, but I just don't, a bit like the theatre, you know, I'm an actor, but I'm not sure as if, if I would want to rush into theatre at the moment and be crammed in next to people. I don't know if I would want to, you know, go to a game and be crammed in. So unless they can make it safe, unless they can spread people out and uh, track people and, you know, sanitise hands, then I can't see it happening. Uh, and certainly the bigger grounds, you know, we've all been in places like Parkhead and Ibrox and it's virtually impossible for home or away fans to have any social distancing. So I don't know. I'm not, I'm not really a fan of watching it live the live stream either I find that a bit dull and also that commitment of like sitting in your house on a Saturday afternoon yeah I'd rather the whole point of going to football is going to the football um, I'd quite happily just watch the highlights and sports scene yeah I, I find um, unless more than team Aberdeen's on um, I don't really get my way to watch a live game to be honest with you I find it um I certainly didn't well I wasn't an avid follower of the Premier League um, in England anyway um, because of the know the riches but yeah, yeah. even even more so even more so with less with no fans in it's just not got the same appeal and the majority of games I mean yeah you had the Hibs Rangers game was a decent one at the weekend but yeah. most of the games have been pretty poor to watch and just lack atmosphere completely yeah and you know as a St Johnson fan you know it's, you know even going to the games sometimes it can be quite dull 
but at least you're at them and there's a social element to it. You've gone and you have a bigger commitment. But, you know, watching an empty McDermott Park on a kind of dodgy stream on a Saturday afternoon, I kind of feel as if I've got better things to do. <laughs> Maybe it's because you've not been winning recently. Yeah. But, I mean, aside from the, you know, obviously it's been tough for you, um, you know, not having any any acting work apart from the one thing that you were telling us about and not getting to go to games. How have you managed to get yourself through what's been mentally a difficult six months? You know, I'd imagine um, you'd have more time with your daughter. Yeah, well, I've got two girls, so they're like uh, into S4 and S1 now. So obviously they were at home for uh, the three months uh, when the schools were shut. Um, We really enjoyed it. I think it was quite a good reset time. You know, obviously the kids were doing their work and the weather was good and you know, you went back to the simple things, you know, we were doing a lot of baking and cooking and, you know, we've got a dog, so all going out as a family for dog walks and making the most of the simple things. And, you know, looking back, you know, I'm not saying I would wish it would happen, but it was, a, it, I, I really enjoyed the first couple of months just getting a break from everything, not rushing about, not having to go and see people and do things. And, you know, I think there was a novelty value to it. Um but almost at the moment, it's almost. I find it more frustrating the kind of in between. You know, when it was full lockdown, you knew exactly where you were. Whereas at the moment, it's like become. Although we're getting out there, it's almost more difficult. You know, you can't just turn up at a pub. You often you have to book in advance and get a table. It's taken a lot of the spontaneity out of doing things. In the way you would go, oh, let's just snip in for a pint. You can't quite do that. You have to sign in. And you know, I'm not I'm not knocking the bars or restaurants or doing that. It's just, um, yeah, it sort of puts you off doing things a wee bit. And you know, I've got no real desire to go to a football match with 300 fans spread out. Yeah, I mean, the pubs, to be honest, is uh, from personal point of view, is the last place I want to go right now. Um, you know, I'd like to see football return, but with regards to crowds, um, you, you know, you mentioned 300 fans. I mean, I think they should be starting at the lower level of Scottish football before it gets to top flight, to be perfectly honest, so they can, um, because for the lower division clubs, and these are the ones that you start to worry about at this point, you know, your stairs, as I mentioned, because Dave Irons was on um, last week, Albion Rovers, etc. Um, you know, because they need fan income, whereas at least the top flight have got the Sky Deal. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. The, the lower league teams that are maybe only getting five, six hundred uh, fans, you know, in big, in, often in big old stadiums where there is plenty of terracing and room. Yeah, I, I'd be all for that. Um, and what you might find, and you know, is people might start going to those games because they can. Yeah, well, let's hope that that happens at some point but um, it's more likely going to be in 2021 at the earliest um, so let's um, move away from the COVID stuff um, and on to um, how you made your name um, you know, um, you obviously before I even got into Tiger you had a, um, a movie role playing the, um, Cameron in Sh- Shallow Grave um, would you consider that as your main big break? Yeah it was probably uh, obviously I got the part just out you know maybe like six weeks out of drama school so it was unbelievable to leave drama school and to be on a feature film in Scotland um, which at that point in 1993 we filmed that was pretty rare uh, and also bizarrely I'd been a, I grew up in Perth and I'd known Ewan from we both went to the local youth theatre in Perth and Ewan and I both worked at the theatre 
So more bizarre than anything was the fact that it was me and him sitting on the set of a film going, how did this happen? You know, four years ago, we were like, you know, doing a Saturday morning class, uh, you know, prancing about the studio. Uh, so yeah, no, it was a great, you know, I didn't realise how, how good a film it would be. And obviously at that point, uh, Danny Boyle was in the Clyde Theatre and uh, TV director, but it was his first movie. Uh, and obviously... It did so well, and then obviously Trainspotting came out of it, and you know Danny Boyle, but then went on to win Oscars. So he probably is at the moment. I don't know Britain's most revered director. So yeah, it was lovely. He was a great. He was brilliant to work with, uh, and yeah, definitely learned a lot from him, and uh, just had an excellent manner and really positive. He, he worked in the way of you know psychology of encouraging people gets better work out of them, which. You know, whether that's football or acting or working in an office, I think if you praise people and pick, highlight the positives, then you get better out of people. Oh, yeah, definitely. Danny Boyle is obviously um, so well-renowned, you know. It's not even just some of his films. I mean, the the London 2012 Olympics that he put, um, opening ceremony he put on was just nothing short of spectacular. Um, you know, so how, you know, what was it like working with him? Yeah, he was... He was um, he was excellent. Obviously, I was very inexperienced, and I'd gone along for the part of Cameron, who uh, was the sort of geeky uh, housemate that comes to apply for the flat. Um, and I just remember, for in- in- instance, um, doing my big scene when I was interviewed, uh, we did the first take, and, and Danny Boyle was like, yeah, that was great. That was absolutely brilliant. You know, j- just do it again. And I did it again. He said, right, we'll see the bit at the start. If you just change that, that would be... And so I went, oh, that's good. But, but the rest of it's good. So I think I changed it. And then after that, he said, see, there's a wee bit in the middle. If you just tweak that. Went, oh, yeah, that's great. But the rest of it's great. Did that. And then maybe in take voice in the bit then, just, just do that. And did it. And basically, he probably totally changed the scene. But he did it in a really positive way. That rather than saying, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, he sort of teased it out of me. And then at the end, he said, you know, we'll do one more and you just do it the way you want. So basically, he got six different ways without putting the pressure onto me for being bad. Or, you know, it was only afterwards that I can analyse how he did it. And I've worked with directors that will go, cut, that, no, that's not working, that's rubbish, you know, we need, this isn't working, you know. And immediately, that creates negativity and, you know, you feel as if you're a failure. So, yeah, I, I thought he used really good psychology. Yeah, fantastic. It sounds like he was a great guy um, to, to work for. And you mentioned uh, Ewan McGregor, who's been on to, um, you know, some in- incredible things. Just sum up the character that he is. Yeah, well, as I say, I knew Ewan from, from when we were both about 16. And uh, you could tell Ewan was sort of going places. His, his, his uncle, Dennis, was obviously been in... Dennis Lawson was a successful actor. And he just was very clear about what he wanted to do. He wanted to go to London and train. And, um, but, you know, at that point, you had a really good uh, work ethic. You know, he worked in the theatre. He, he, I remember he, he worked in a bar in Perth, uh, like on breaks from studying. And he also worked in Grassex BMW garage. He would actually fix cars. He was he's a really good mechanic. But he had a car from a very early age. So I would remember going into the... the the garage in Perth into the, you know, where they did all the service and, and Ewan was there in his boiler suit in the holidays, you know, fixing cars. So, um, yeah, he, he, you know, he, I don't think he did. I don't think he got like great grades at, at school, but he definitely knew 
that he wanted to do something and become an actor. And obviously, he's probably become the most successful Scottish actor the past thirty years. Yeah, definitely. He's um, he's he's done all right for himself. I remember when he was um, because um, I, I don't think he's a big football fan, but he. He went on yeah. um, that McCoy's Macaulay at France '98, um, and he was pretty much pretty pissed um, when he went yes. on that show. And his dad was on; it was um, absolutely hilarious. It was one of the better McCoy's and Macaulay's ones. Um, yeah, another was, Johnson fan. I don't know if you remember. There was a big, there was a big story not long after that. I think maybe a year after that. That it was when the Sky Games used to be on on a Sunday night, and Ewan was back at home. Uh, in Creef, and it was a game at six o'clock. It was St Johnston Kilmarnock, and Ewan's dad or a neighbour had said, "Let's go down to the game," and off they went. And McCoyster was playing for Kilmarnock at the time. And I think the story goes that Ewan then saw friend Macaulay at the game because he was friendly with Ali, and he said to Ewan, "Look, come come into the lounge, and we'll see Ali eh, after the game." So Ewan McGregor obviously didn't have just turned up at the game in normal clothes and he went into one of the lounges and he obviously didn't have a tie on and a St. Johnson director took great umbrage with this and basically threw him out and of course a journalist in the Daily Record or whatever ran it as a front page story Ewan McGregor thrown out of and from speaking to Ewan's dad you know he just said you know Ewan will never darken their door after that because all they had to do was go and give him a tie and they must have Johnson time and make a story of it. But some jobs were uh, through him out. So, uh, no, I don't think he'll be. He certainly won't be back in St. Johnston anytime soon after that. Dearing me. Yeah, talk about Miss PR. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I've never actually knew that story. That's, yeah, apparently, that's apparently okay. the, the old, I don't care who he is, he doesn't have a tie on, was overheard. For God's so, sake. Um, Surely yeah, someone could have went above that guy and got him a tie that day, but yeah, yeah, because that yeah, would have brought great publicity to St Johnson at that point. Then, but absolutely, do you know what I mean? Um, but I think he did tweet when Saints won the cup, so saying <laughs> you know he was aware of that, so he must still check the scores. Yeah, he must have some affinity with it, wanting to go to the game. So, no, fair enough. So, yeah, um, on to um, your role at Tiger. So, I didn't actually know until I was reading, um, doing my research. I actually had a couple of cameo roles before you got um, the DC Fraser part. Um, just talk about that time when you joined, because it's obviously a bit of a sombre experience as well, because Mark McManus, um, the original Tiger, pass, passed away, sadly. Um, and there was a bit of a reformat of the show, and you played a part in that. Yeah, obviously I'd I'd like um, I'd done an episode of Doctor Friendly and I'd done some Take the High Road, so I got offered a like a, a part of a really bad car thief. I mean, bad as in my acting. Um, <laughs> he was meant to be like a, a kind of neddy baseball capped uh, car thief. I think I was probably the poshest car thief in Whitehead. <laughs> Looking back on it, and then I got, played another part quite quickly of a like a farmhand who was involved in that kind of ritual thing. Uh, and then I got asked again to go back in for the part of DC Fraser. And I was a bit like, you know, I've been in like the past two. Um, but the way it was transmitted, there was often a big gap. So they said it wouldn't be a problem. Um, but yeah, when I started, it was the just before filming, Mark took ill um, and went into hospital and then sadly died, which was obviously horrific. But, you know, from a... From a personal point of view, I was a bit. It was a bit, you know, you get a regular part in a series, and the main character dies after a week. So, well, there was part of it that was going typical. But 
Um, yeah, obviously it was really sad, and at that point they weren't sure whether the show would continue. Um, but they certainly persevered to finish the first episode that we did, and then they said, oh, we'll do a year's worth, and then I think it ended up going for like another 15 years. So, yeah, the show kind of evolved quite a lot. Uh, and also I do know that Martin Manis was also very keen that the show would continue without him because he realised it was... A, you know, a, a, a really important job for Scotland. You know, employed a lot of staff, loads of actors, and also it was, at that time it was the only network show that was that was made in, in Scotland and shown on ITV. So uh, it was very important. Uh, and you know, over the years, it's employed hundreds, if not thousands, of actors up here. Yeah, I mean, so you you obviously got to meet Mark briefly, which um, I didn't. No, I didn't actually know that when you started, that's when um, he was starting to take ill. Um, so, I mean, in the short time that you knew him, just um, what kind of character was he like? Yeah, well, the, 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 the scenes that I'd done in the two previous... I'd met Mark, met Mark like the read-throughs, but I'd never actually been in a scene with him. But the way the storylines worked, they were just separate. Um, so I never got to act with him. But when I got the script for the first one as DC Fraser, I had loads to do with Mark. And I was really looking forward to that. And... So what happened was when Mark died, they, they, they had a B script and I basically inherited a lot of, kind of what Mark did in it. So my part became bigger immediately, um, which was good for me. Um, but yeah, he was, you know, obviously I heard all the stories about him over the years uh, and he was a, he was a character and everyone, everyone loved him and, you know, he had a great career. He, he was in Australia in the 60s and, you know, he was in Ned Kelly with uh, Mick Jagger and 20,000 years BC with Raquel Welsh. And then he was at the National in London, played played like, I think he played Macbeth at the National and he played uh, in the Crucible. So he had this great stage career as well. Um, and people used to always, they always used to make out that Mark wasn't a very good actor. That nobody, nobody moved, you know. He was kind of always like, people thought he was a bit wooden, but... You just need to look back at some of the stage work he did, and he was—he was a renowned actor on stage, um, and I always thought he was brilliant in Tiger. Yeah, well, I mean, he obviously makes Tiger, but then uh, there's obviously there's also going to be that challenge. What's the show going to be like without him? Um, you know, and James McPherson steps up to um, you know play um, basically Tiger. So um, his character—I can't remember what was his character's name. So it's just slipped my mind. Uh, uh, Michael Jordan. Jordan. Yeah, so it's just remembered. Yes, so Jordan gets a promotion. Um, G.S. Reed get um, um, Blythe's character Reed um, gets promoted, and you come in. No, just how challenging was that first year, knowing that the criticism, the possible critics were going to say, it's not, it's not the same without Mark. I think there was less pressure on me because I was coming in new and at the bottom. The, the, the most of the pressure was on James and, and Blythe taking on that mantle and, you know, they are, were obviously worrying about their livelihoods as well. And I think, you know, you have to realise that um, before Alex Norton came into it, we, we did like seven years just with, you know, with Mark, you know, because people always go, James was, you know, he wasn't as good, but, you know, the show ran for almost as long, <laughs> you know, just with James in control. Um, and then John Meekie came in and halfway through as Robbie Ross, so, yeah, the show always evolved, and the difficult thing was James's character was always a sidekick, and it was hard for that character to become 
like a more interesting main character, if you know what I mean. Like Taggart was a really interesting character. And when Alex Norton came in, he was like brought in to ruffle feathers and all that. Um, so it was it was it was a difficult role for James, but you know, having worked with James, he was, he was a brilliant actor uh, and excellent to work with. Uh, and you know, I really enjoyed my time with James. Yeah, that's excellent. Um, and one of the, um, your character, um, the, there was a bit of a controversial storyline um, that he came out as um, being gay, and this was in a time where it wasn't it wasn't prevalent for you know for people to come out at that point you know times thankfully have changed um nowadays yeah. i mean what see when you get hit by that you know what was your initial reaction it was strange because when i uh, the first year i did the character uh, so maybe like like three different stories there was no mention of the character being gay even though i think in retrospect they sort of knew and i found out later that like the costume lady and the makeup girls all knew everyone knew apart from me but I think the reason, at the time, it was a bit, I was a bit shocked because I was a bit annoyed that that I should have known that to inform how I was playing the character. But I think looking back on it, I think what they wanted to set up was they wanted to start to create a character who just was like normal in burnt commas, who was likable, who is he wasn't defined by his sexuality. He just was a good cop uh, and a nice and a good character and. When the reveal came along, it, he was gay. It, it, he became. He was always a policeman first, mm-hmm. and it could go two years without his sexuality being mentioned. And if it had no relation to the story, it wouldn't be mentioned at all. It was only if there was a connection to someone new, or maybe you know the gay scene or something. So I quite liked it that he was a he was a a detective who happened to be gay, rather than a gay detective. Um, and I think that made for a more interesting. Uh, sort of storyline and stuff yeah. that no one expects them to be gay either. Yeah, I think I think that's what makes things a bit better, is that, you know, it just hitches a shell. So it's not like as if you started day one, I'm, I'm gay, I'm, I'm yeah, you know, I think you might start, no. by, yeah, your attitude and things. So I, I, at the time I was a bit thrown by it, but afterward, looking back in time, I think it was quite a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, of course... I, I never, you know, there, there was some, there was a few um, derogatory headlines. One in particular, which was the, the headline was "faggot," which, when you look back on now, that that was actually twenty five years ago. That was in a Scottish newspaper. Um, you know, you just can't believe that that would be would get away. So apart from that, you know, I, I remember going to like a game. I can't remember where it was, but it was it might have been somewhere like Thistle and going to kind of one of the more salubrious pubs around Mary Hill Road or somewhere and this guy coming up to me who you know had, a, had a, quite a few drinks and he said to me when oh I, are you the boy for the tiger and I'm like oh yes yes and he said I are you the are you the poofy one and I went yeah oh yes he went well the thing is see right here we don't mind poofs but we can't eat thunder polis <laughs> so uh, that's Glasgow for you, do you know what I mean? So very very accepting of your sexuality, but not of your job. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was great. <laughs> that's just typical Glasgow humour. I mean, um, apart from that one, you know, what was the, what was the reception um, you got like, you know, and um, did you um, get a new gay following? I don't know. It was, um, I think also what's quite interesting is, 
that at that point, I don't think there was any, take the soaps out of the equation, but I don't think there was any openly gay characters in any sort of, you know, maybe one-off dramas, but I don't think in any detective series or programs like that. So it was actually quite a cutting-edge decision to make. Uh, and I don't know if you look back on gay characters in, in TV, whether, you know, it, is a, a, it was an important thing, but certainly at the time it, it was quite a big deal. Um, but again, because because the character happened to be gay, and often, you know, he wasn't fighting for gay rights, or there was, you know, I mean, he stuck up for bullying and things. The character was quite a big part of him, and people were bullied and things. Yeah. But as I say, he was a character I think who ha- who happened to be gay, and I think that was quite a positive thing that it just showed people's people's sexuality doesn't define them in their job. Um, and I think that was the most interesting part about it, because obviously in soaps you would have the kind of token gay character, um, but yeah, I think it was. I think looking back, it was it was it was a challenge. Yeah, it would have been a challenge, and thankfully it was something that um, no, thank thankful we're living in times where people can be open um, about, or it's more acceptable. Although I think. Um, Football has a problem um, still because they're still only just in fashion. But we'll just need to yeah. see if uh, more people come yeah. out in years to come. Um, so you mentioned uh, John Mickey um, came in. Um, you know, we see a laugh as much a laugh off off the screen as he was on it. Yeah, I didn't know John. I hadn't known John at all. Uh, he'd been in Tiger like years previously uh, before I was in it. Um, right. So and uh, yeah, he'd always been London based. So I knew, I knew him. I'd seen him and things, but no, I'd never, I'd never worked with John or come across him. But yeah, I got me and John got him great um, socially uh, and also working together. You know, John would come up to Glasgow and his family were in London, so he was always keen to go for a pint or go up a hill or go to see, do something, have a night out. So, yeah, and obviously before having children, uh, we were, yeah, we were partners in crime a few times on night outs. Uh, and, yeah, John, John was also a very interesting character because he'd, he'd uh, been born in Burma and ended up uh, going to boarding school. He'd come, been sent to Glen Amond, uh, not far from Perth, and spent his sort of teenage years there and has a pathological hate, hatred of private schools in it as a result. So, yeah, so he was a, he's a, John's a great, very interesting character uh, and good, great fun to be around, uh, especially, you know, I remember going to watch the Scotland-Brazil game in 98, and in those days when things were a lot more relaxed, we... They, they, they even scheduled like a half day on Tiger so we could all get away to watch the, the, the game, which now would never be allowed. Do you know what I mean? You would be working till eight o'clock at night, but we all got away at one o'clock. And uh, we went to a pub in the West End and I think it was a pound a pint during the game. And I think we probably had about 10 pints <laughs> during the game. Uh, and, you know, I don't remember much about the aftermath of the game, but it certainly was a great, a great laugh. Yeah, excellent. Um, I think I think Scotland unofficially was on a half day holiday that day to watch yeah. that game, and uh, you know, for me as a Scotland fan, that's um, you know the pe- the pinnacle of um, you know my lifetime as a Scotland was, fan yeah. watching that. Opening um, the World Cup um, against the Brazil, it was amazing. Yeah, no, tremendous times. Um, Alex Norton obviously um, then becomes the lead role after um, James McPherson's character was killed off. Um, 
Alex strikes me, and I'm only getting this from some of the things I've seen him in, but he he, he strikes me as a very um, patriotic guy. What's he really like? Yeah, I think Alex um, Alex obviously grew up in the sort of 60s, and uh, again, he's an amazing, interesting career. He started off like as a folk singer and went off to London and then was in Virgin Soul, the film The Virgin Soldiers, alongside David Jones, who became David Bowie. Uh, and then Alex came up and worked a lot in theatre in Scotland in the 70s with 74 and uh, Billy Connolly's plays and then you know moved off to back to London and he had a great film and TV career before Tiger you know he was in Patriot Games and um, you know out in Hollywood doing things like that and you know he, Alex is one of these people he's filmed everywhere he's like oh I was in the Falklands I was in Russia oh yeah I went to did a film in Africa with Clint Eastwood and and then, in the midst of Tiger, he went off to do Pirates of the Caribbean uh, with Johnny Depp. Um, so, yeah, Alex has got... He, he's said in a book, but he's got great anecdotes um, because he's sort of been there and done it all, as I say, from folk scene through to theatre to all, you know, the Bill Forsyth movies as well. You know, I, I grew up watching Alex in films and TV shows, so it was a big thrill for me getting a chance to work with him and, you know, becoming his friend. Yeah, uh, the, the, do you know? Just we mentioned a couple of things that he's been in. He was also in some um, some pro, um, pro, STV program prior to that World Cup that we were talking about. Um, where oh it was, yeah. Um, I, I think it was called the game. You cannot find that anywhere on YouTube, and I want to relive it again to see. Yeah, I think how it, good was, it was. Uh, it was. Um, was it written by? It might have been written by a guy called. Paul Pender. Andy Gray was in this. No, Andy Gray, the yeah, commentator, obviously. No, yeah, Andy Gray and Forbes Masson were in it. It was a <laughs> three-hander. Uh, yeah, they, I think they filmed it up at... It was Grampian TV that made it. Um, oh, right. But, yeah, it was called The Game. Um, but, no, I, I, I've never seen it since either. But Alex is so not... He's not a football fan at all. No. He's literally not interested in watching... You know, it's one of those... He'd much rather be playing his guitar or... Um, hanging about French, French sort of bistros. You know what I mean? He's not, he's not, he's not a football fan at all. Nah, there it is. Um, I mean, what's? I mean, just talk about some of the um, the camaraderie you guys all had um, away from the screen as well as on it. Yeah, well, I think it's a bit like um, the the really good thing about Tiger was that although there was mainly only four of us at a time that were the main cast. Every sort of six weeks, you'd have a totally different story, a totally different director, and a totally different cast. So it always felt very fresh. You were always getting different actors in, and you were getting. You felt as if you were, although you you had this sort of permanent job, you were always keeping in touch with people. Whereas sometimes in something like a soap, it's the same twenty actors stuck in a studio somewhere, and we were always different. Every day we were in somewhere different in Glasgow, you know, a different location. Well, we always shot in location. Um, so you never went to the same place, you know, maybe three days in a row or something. But then it was on. It was like the circus moving on, um, and yeah, there was loads of like funny stories about things that happened. One of my, one of my favourite ones was we were filming outside Central Station, and we'd screech up in a car and like run into the station as if we, you know, we were then going to go on and arrest someone or pull someone off a train. And obviously we rehearsed it a couple of times and then, you know, you're trying to do it in the middle of town at 10 o'clock in the morning, so you're waiting on buses and taxis. And we probably did it, you know, maybe six times in total, screeched in and ran in. And there was this wee woman standing watching um, and she stood for like 45 minutes, watching the whole time. 
And then as we finished, she just, she eventually, she was really quite a timid little lady. And she came up to me and she came up to us and, you know, the three of us and went, oh, excuse me, is it, is it Tiger that you're filming? And we were like, yeah, 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 it is, yeah. And she went, oh, right. She went, is it a new episode or a repeat? And of course, we are like, sorry, she went, oh, is it a new one or is it a repeat? And we are like, no, it's a new one. Oh, good, I look forward to seeing it. <laughs> and off she went, and of course, we were like going, oh, my God, imagine, like, Imagine if there was a repeat, you would actually have to refill. You'd have to go back and refilm it again. <laughs> you spent five weeks filming something, and then you've got to redo it because it's back on again. So yeah, it was the idea that she thought it might have been a repeat. I just thought that was brilliant. Yeah, just as well you're not doing that again for ITV two or um, Gold and whatever. <laughs> yeah, that was one. That was one of the funniest times we had. <laughs> Excellent. What about your favourite episodes of Target? What was you, what would you say your favourite ones were? Uh, it's hard to say. There was to be a few because obviously, uh, personally, probably the one when James McPherson was killed off because um, that was really emotional filming it, um, and also some. It was really well. It was a really good episode. It was called Death Trap and some beautiful shots. And obviously, it was you had Alex's character coming in as well, so you had the kind of sparks flying from that. And Alex being the new coming into new, and he was really keen and positive and. He brought a real energy into it. So, it, obviously, sad losing James, but at the same time, the excitement of Alex coming in. And, uh, you know, there was there was new producers, the new writer. It just, it, 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 it did really kickstart the show then. So that would probably be one of my favourite ones. But there was other ones that, you know, that maybe were more important to me. I, I, there was an episode that was about travelling people uh, that we did a few years later, um, and it was a like oh, set in the shows about travelling people. And I was really involved. It was a big storyline for me, and I ended up getting like my character got stabbed. In that it was the David Bradley who was in all the Harry Potter films and is in Doctor Who, and he's in Afterlife with. Uh, he plays Ricky Gervais's dad in Afterlife and he's a great character actor and it was brilliant with him a really strong episode and because I had a lot to do in it it was one of the ones I most enjoyed That's excellent um, so obviously you were there from 94 to 2010 and then all of a sudden um, you get a phone call to say it's no longer um, it's no longer going to be filmed it's cancelled no just talk through the devastation of that after 15, 16 years of job security? Yeah, well, uh, yeah, it was actually more, for me, it was worse than that because uh, it got, we filmed away really busily until 2008. I think 2008 we did 10 episodes, which is the most we'd ever done. Um, basically, we filmed like 10 months that year. And then the sort of financial crash and STV had a big fallout with ITV. So we had a full year where ITV didn't commission anything. And we didn't film. And then, you know, there was all big negotiations about taking a pay cut to try and keep the show going and things. So we had a lot of, loads of discussions because if they were going to make it, they had to bring the price down. And we all negotiated and discussed and, you know, came back and forth and agreed stuff. And then in the meantime, they got rid of the producer and the head of drama and they brought new people in um, who came up from down south to, to run the show, which I wasn't very happy about and then I basically got dumped from the last year so to save 
25%. They just got rid of my character. So I basically got a two-minute phone call to say, you're out of this show, and that was it. And they never mentioned my character again. Uh, he didn't get an exit. He didn't get killed off. You know, And I'd done 75 episodes over 15 years, and it was just nothing. Uh, and then they did, so the last year of Tiger, they did six episodes, um, which... I've never actually watched. Um, and then it got axed completely. So that really spoiled it for me. Uh, so, yeah, I never got an exit and I never got to say goodbye to anyone or a go-to-way party. Or, so that really left a better taste. So, you know, and it was sort of slight public humili- humiliation because the, the story was given to the press and it was made out, it was made out that I was sacked. And at that point, there wasn't even a, commi- there wasn't even a commission to make episodes. So... Um, yeah, I got kind of shafted uh, with that. Yeah. So that oh, sort of, you know, coloured how I look back in the show. I was always his biggest sort of, you know, f- uh, I would always fight his corner and stick up for it. And then the way I got treated, I kind of, I just, you know, that's that's compartmentalised now. And I don't really, I just kind of don't look back in it as fondly as I probably should do. Well, that's understandable if you've um, if that's the way it's ended, you know. Um, so we don't blame you. See, you did go into do a few other things. River City stands out. Um, you had a few episodes in that um, playing the character. Was it Nick, the, the character? Yeah, I, I went into River City. So the, the the producer from Tiger who got the boot as well, he then went to go by River City, and he was obviously keen uh, to get me involved. You know, because he knew me and also because of the way. I'd been shafted at STV, so I went and joined him for like four months in River City, which was good just to get back working and um, keeping busy. Uh, so yeah, I went and played a politician who, the idea had been that when the character went in, he was actually going to become like, he was going to be like a paedophile politician, um, and he was going to groom one of the characters and then get caught sort of thing and lose his, he stood to be an MSP and he would lose his seat sort of thing. And that was always the stats. And why I wanted to do it was because it, it felt like a, a bit of a something different from Tiger, where it was like a goodie. Mm-hmm. Um, but once we started filming, they sort of kicked out of it and they changed it and made made the sort of, they not him not to be, to be kind of like a misunderstanding and mm-hmm. me to stand down because, you know, I'd obviously made a fool, you know. So it, it didn't quite develop into the storyline it was meant to be. So it sort of ended with a bit of a damp squid. Squid. Yeah, yeah that's, a, that's a shame. Um, and what, what one thing that, um, no, I've, I've noticed him because my, my son um, watched this a lot, Willie and Tig um, playing the yes. dad. Um, how much did you enjoy playing that? Um, and, you know, playing the daughter, uh, playing the dad of a daughter whose favourite toy is a spider? Yeah, it was really weird. It was like, it was the people that made Balamoric at a, a show called Me Too, and I sort of knew them, but I never really worked with them. And my daughters went to the Scottish Youth Theatre, and I was away at a wedding actually in, in California, and they got. My wife took them to an audition. There was more my older daughter, but they really liked Betsy, the wee one, who was only like three at the time. And they didn't know I was her dad. And it was only after uh, they, they were doing just in like a pilot episode. And uh, when they found out I was the dad, they went, oh, that would make a lot of sense. And it was actually meant to be Mark Fox from <laughs> Still Game. He was meant to play the dad. And he lost out the part because uh, Betsy, so he never, he always uh, winds me up that Betsy cost him a job. 
Um, <laughs> and then it was just it was just one day's filming, and then they did you know I did the spider and all that, and then they needed someone to do the voiceover, so my older daughter did the voiceover because she sounded like Betsy, but older. And, mm-hmm. and then they needed once we got commissioned to do a series, they needed a mum, and my sister-in-law's Jenny Fraser's Jenny Ryan is a actress so i suggested jenny and obviously betsy knew her so it made all sort of fit together and then when she needed a granddad i suggested alex norton because it was always better for betsy to work with people she knew yeah so uh, it was good uh, yeah the, the only downside is that like most people you go to work to get away from your family so it was a bit annoying that i was you know had betsy there and you know uh, uh, my wife would come and chaperone and stuff so uh, yeah, but it worked. It worked out good, and it's, you know, it's if you go on YouTube, you know, some of the episodes have been watched. It's unbelievable, 150 million times. Yeah. Wow. The, the swimming episode, I think, 150 million views, which is just mental. I would never, I would never have guessed that. <laughs> yeah. Um, or if you add up the total of all of it, it's like billions. Because wow. people, parents put them on and put them on like repeat and uh, and they're so good, they're sort of timeless and you know, as kids get older, other kids come along and I think in YouTube they put them together and you can get like hour episodes when so they put like 20 episodes together mm-hmm. um, and they run for like two hours so people can leave their kids just staring at the screen. Yeah, that's, that's, that's incredible how... Um, you know, something like that evolves and it must make you feel quite proud to you know the fact it's been family orientated as it turned out. Yeah, no, it's good. It's something we're all proud of. And, and it's really nice to look back on. But, you know, it's still, it still gets shown in CBBS now. So it's, uh, we did like three years of it. Um, and, yeah, it was good. We went and did an episode in Spain, which was quite good fun. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was a nice job to do. Yeah, I, I've not seen it for a while. My, my son's got a wee bit older. Um, but right, <laughs> he's going to see children, BBs. <laughs> other children come along, though. That's why they, they don't need to do any more. They just keep repeating them. So, right, I've got a, I've got a um, six-week-old baby, so know that he'll be watching Willie oh, yeah. Tig in a year or two. I'll be coming back soon. <laughs> yeah, without doubt. Um, but still, um, you had a wee cameo role in Still Game. That must have been a, a, a dream for you. Yeah, it was great, because obviously... Um, I was at like I was at Scott's Street Theatre with Paul Riley, so I've known Paul for over thirty years, and then I'd worked with Mark Cox previously and Jane McCarry. I've done like four Christmas shows with Jane. Um, Greg is married to my friend Julie, so Gavin I'd worked with loads. So I've known them all for years and years and years, uh, and often when like Still Game was going about the same time as Tiger, then they would film before us, and then a lot of the crew would work in both, both shows. And then Taggart stopped and still game stopped. So it was nice when it came back that um, I managed to get a wee cameo. Uh, and it was it was good fun. Because yeah. it's a good one to have on your CV just to say that you were in it. You know, it ticks a box. Um, you can say that you've been in still game. So, yeah, it was, it was a good laugh to do. Yeah, there's lots of actors and actresses that have um, been on Still Game and probably get recognised more for one episode of Still Game. I know, than, I know. Like, in your case, it could be that one episode out outshines the 75 of Taggart. I know, exactly. Um, I was hoping that it would keep on going and the, the butcher would get it to come back, but uh, sadly that didn't happen. Yeah, I think I think it's um, run its course. I think they knew the right time to finish it. To be fair, so yes. no, um, fair play to them. So, um, um, you've obviously done a bit of panto. Um, 
the, the one that I noticed that you did recently with Cinderella. Um, just how much pride? How how much do you enjoy the panto bit um, as a with in relation to the rest of your acting stuff? Uh, the thing with with me because I was in Tiger for fifteen years and we would tend to work like maybe sort of March to kind of October November. Um, and my wife was a, as a teacher and was a teacher that Christmas time was always a time that I didn't want to work because uh, I'd been working all year and my wife was off and so I never really I didn't really do it a lot for like a period of maybe fifteen years. And then by which time I came to do it, loads of other actors had established themselves in that. So although I've probably done five or six Christmas shows, but it's, it's really good fun to do. It's hard work. Um, but what's so special about it is that pretty much every, it's always a full audience and people are there to have a good time. No one's there to criticise or judge or, you know, I wasn't very good or he's not very good or I don't like it. It's just people are out to have a good time, so you can't fail. Um, and yeah, it's great, but it, it can be a slog. The the hard thing about it is you you look around and everyone else is having fun, and you're going to your work, and that can be on Boxing Day or New Year's Eve or you know the January the first that you've got to go to work. So it does sort of spoil your Christmas. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, you you do miss out on a lot of fun, a lot of family fun. Yeah. But yeah, it's really good fun to do. Last year I did, as I say, I played Scrooge in Pilocri, um and it was great. Uh, and what was even better about that was it finished on the 23rd of December. So it didn't carry on after Christmas. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you got really busy all through December, busy, 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 and then you can enjoy Christmas and New Year without having to go back to your work. Yeah, that that's all great. I mean, it's just a shame that we don't know what the future holds. Hopefully, from you know your perspective, you know you've got things to look forward to come um, the turn of twenty twenty one at least. Um, so, you know, I wish you all the best in that. But we'll move on to the. the yeah, on you go. Sorry. I did a film. I did a film at the end of last year that's not come out yet. It was called uh, the, the Last Bus with Timothy Spall. Oh, so okay. that's a. Uh, Basically, I think they finished that over lockdown, um, and it's Timothy Spall and Phyllis Logan, and it's a lovely script uh, about an old guy who tries to travel from John O'Groats to Land's End uh, by bus, oh. by the bus <laughs> pass. So basically, he meets a succession of people on this journey from from John O'Groats to Land's End. So it's all little, it's all sort of cameo parts, all people that he meets. So I've got a nice part in that, uh, and it was great working with. Timothy Spall, he's absolutely brilliant. Again, an actor I'd grown up. So hopefully that'll be coming out soon. Um, and it'll be nice to be back, you know, you know, being seen in a movie. So, But again, it's obviously the story's pre-COVID where people could cram onto a bus, etc. So I don't know how, how a, a post-COVID audience will take that. It'll, it'll seem like a period piece already. Yeah, Timothy Spall's a great actor. Um, so yeah, great. whenever that comes out, I promise we'll um, do a wee yeah, plug well, for the last bus for you. It's funny. That's one of the things about an actor is that you can, you know, you you can go through a period of maybe not having work, and then suddenly you get a job, and you know you might not work for three or four months, and suddenly you turn up on a job, and you're acting with someone like Timothy Spall, and you've just got to like hold your own and go, and sometimes like you're standing going. That's Timothy Spall. I was a scene with him. And you've got to, like, you know, 
raise your benchmark to work with him and sometimes you do have to kind of like shape yourself Fabulous. No, that all sounds good. So we'll look forward to watching that when it comes out. That sounds quite interesting to know about it. The yeah, storyline you're doing. Yeah, brilliant. So, yeah, the main reason um, we've got you on, let's be honest, it's called the Scottish Football Forums Podcast, and you're a big St. Johnston fan. Um, so, what? Uh, tell us, talk us through your early memories, like the first kind of games that you went to, um, which would have been obviously at Merton Park in those days. And was it just yeah, the local so team connection? Was just the local team connection that drew Yeah, you yeah, I grew up in Perth, and, and my dad, who he was originally from Recife, so he had no connection to to Perth. He would have gone to see Dunfermline as a boy, and um, yeah, obviously as a kid, yeah, me and my brother were really into football, so we hassled my dad to obviously take us. And the first game I went to was 1979, so it'd have been 87, and it was a midweek game. Just at the end of the season, and it was about it was a derby against Dundee, and Saints were pushing to avoid relegation, and Dundee were pushing to get promoted, and there was a game that had been rearranged on New Year's Day, because I think there was really bad snow that night. They didn't play for like about three months that year, uh, so it was the New Year's Day, and I think it was played in the first of May. It was a midweek game under the floodlights, and there was like five, six thousand fans at it, which you probably wouldn't get for a Dundee game now. Um, and just six, one, three, two, and it was absolutely a brilliant game. And you could change ends at half time, so I remember all that. I remember people drinking at it, throwing bottles. It was like, it was a different world to the one we know now. Um, and that, yeah, that was a really good scene. That was just when Alan, Alan McCoyst was breaking through. And, John Brogan was playing for Saints and Jimmy Morton and yeah, there there was a good team. So yeah, I just started going because it was my local team. Oh, that's that's excellent. And uh, you know, Mutant Park. Um, you know, I I didn't get to see Mutant Park um, when I started following um, football. So just what kind of stadium um, for? Because obviously it's been gone for thirty odd years. Just talk us through what that um, what Mutant Park was like as a stadium for those. It was just know. one of your uh, one of your pre-war basic stadiums built, I think, in about twenty six or something. So one main wooden stand with a kind of standing at the bottom and the seats above, and then two big terrace things. And then I think they built a big shed, maybe fifties, just in, like a covered shed, so getting wet. Um, and the dice drink at one end. Uh, which is called the Ice Kent. So yeah, it was like we a bit like uh, Ayers Ground, a bit like Air United, I think. Um, that sort of type of, or Capolo maybe, quite similar to that. Not not fancy at all. Yeah. Um, and obviously in those days you would get lift over, lifted over the the stand, the the turnstile. But I remember the biggest game was in 1981. We got Rangers in the cup. So I think it was the third round of the cup. And it was an all-ticket game. There were 17,000 tickets sold. Because at that point, we were in the lower league and Celtic, they never never came to play very often. And I've never been, that was absolutely crammed. It was like terrifyingly busy. Uh, And it's an absolutely brilliant game. It's on YouTube if you you Google it. Uh, It ended up 3-all. And Rangers went 2-0 up at half-time. And their team had like Willie Johnston, Sandy Jardin, David Cooper... Um, they were, you know, every player was a household name. Peter McCloy in goals, um, and Saints ended up getting back into it. And we went up 3 2. And with the last kick of the ball, uh, the, I think it was a free kick, and it got flighted in. And the St. Johnson goalie, he was George Sullock, he was, he was about 5 foot 8, 
He comes out to catch the cross, misses it, and Ian Redford, who was from Perth, headed it, looked at it, and it went in, and Rangers sneaked through to a replay, and they beat us 4-1 at Ibrox. And McCoy scored, right? McCoy, that was McCoy's first goal at Ibrox, Forcey Johnston. And it just, it was a complete heartbreak. It set the model off, you know, victorious in defeat, that we got so close. And then, you know, and it had to be a, a player from Perth that he grew up supporting Saints that scored the goal. Uh, and it's great, it's a good game. I think it's on, it's about two minute highlights on YouTube. Uh, but yeah, the Rangers are great players, and it would have been a great result for Saints. So until we won the Scottish Cup in 2014, that was always the kind of close but no cigar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you had a few semi-finals um, over over the years, um, and I'll come on to 2014 soon, I promise. Um, but uh, so was Alan McCoy your first main hero um, growing up? Yeah, McCoy. He didn't stay that long. He, he got sold pretty quickly. So yeah, he was obviously an exciting. But you know, players like uh, John Brogan, who was a great player for Saints, and a guy called Jim Jim Morton, who was a brilliant player, a sort of classy uh, centre midfielder. With a kind of porn star moustache. Uh, he was one of my favourite players, definitely, when I grew up. Yeah, excellent. So you, um, then there's the move to McDermott Park. Um, and and within the first season, this is a game that I look at, um, I've looked up on YouTube a couple of times. The air to one, yes. Um, yeah. words out of my mouth. And I'm actually interviewing John Martin this week. So um, he had probably the game of his life. I think if it wasn't for him and the bar three times, St. Johnson could have won that about 10 1. Um, yeah. 10,000 for a St. Johnston Airdrie yeah. game. You just think now... It's, it's, it's a first division game, I know. Uh-huh. I know, it's mental. Would that go there as well, your favourite? Yeah, it was an unbelievable. I wasn't actually at that game because it was 1990. I was at drama school, so oh. I think at that point I probably was like had more pressing things to do or whatever. So it's, it's a game that I missed, actually, and I do regret that. Um, but obviously I was living in Glasgow at the time and um, probably was less keen on football then. Uh, but yeah, it's an amazing game. And again, when you watch, I've watched it recently, the highlights, it's unbelievable. Yeah, yeah, that obviously got St. Johnson up. And, um, <laughs> and then... Yeah, the only other time I've ever seen McDermott Park full was when, nine, so 10 years later, 99, when we played Dundee to get promoted. No, to go to Europe. Right. We played Dundee in the last game of the season. Is that Paul that Kane? Was a, yeah, Paul Kane scored the winner, and that was a complete sellout. And other than that, just, the Darren Park's never been full. You, like, some of the European nights, they got about 9,000, uh, I think, against Lucerne. or uh, And I think even when we played Monaco, it was in the afternoon, there was only about 6,000 at that. So, really? Yeah, it's quite the sad thing about McDermott is it's barely ever full. Yeah, it's, it's a shame. I mean, you see it quite a lot. I mean, um, they've had to shut stands a couple of times. Um, so I, that's why I totally get what you're saying. And and people obviously make the, the point that oh, they had um, had 15,000 at the cup final in 2014. What, um, where have they all gone? Yeah. I think that's the same for most clubs, to be fair, not just in Johnson. Yeah, it becomes a day out. And, and Perth, like, you know, and it wasn't necessarily just people from... Uh, sorry. It wasn't necessarily just people from Perth that went to that game. It, was, it would have been the whole of Perthshire. So people from Pitlochtry and Aberfeldy and uh, places where they come. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I think, you know, it's really hard to, you know, I, I think St. Johnson have done all they can to try and keep the support and encourage the support. 
you know, we were doing the deal there. It was an adult and two kids for £15 at every home game. And, you know, and even with that, it was only hundreds of folk were taking it up. Um, you know, although Perth's population is getting bigger, the, a lot of the people that live in Perth are people that maybe commute to Glasgow and Edinburgh or Dundee. So it's trying to get that audience and that, uh, get a crowd interested. And, you know, sadly, even with winning the Scottish Cup, I don't think we managed to turn that into selling more season tickets. Yeah. Well, we'll obviously talk about the 2014 Scottish Cup season. So, um I don't want to bring this up because it was um, the semi-final against Aberdeen. Because um, I'm an Aberdeen fan, um, so we'd obviously beat the you in the league. Yeah, we beat you in the league cup four um, yeah. 0 um, That's one of my four 0 Four 0 yeah. It was four 0 oh, yeah. 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 Um, for for me personally, that was a that was a great day, um, and we obviously went on to win the cup. So I remember the start that the BBC were putting on their news before the semi-final. I think it was nine Scottish Cup meetings between Aberdeen and St Johnston. Aberdeen had won eight, and there was one draw. And I just thought St Johnston's going to win this. And yeah. although Aberdeen had chances to put the game to bed, St Johnston stayed in the game. And to be fair, you took your chances through Stephen May. And, no, I think the thing had been, I'd, you know, even like in the past, that, that past decade, I think we'd been in seven or eight cup final, eh, semi-finals, <laughs> and we'd, we'd lost to Rangers, you know, by one goal, we'd lost to Celtic in penalties, and um, we'd been gubbed by Motherwell, we'd, you know, we were, it's semi-final, we were making like two semi-finals every year, and we just couldn't go over the line, we couldn't get there, we, we got to a League Cup final in 99, which we'd lost to Rangers, and um, but psychologically, we just couldn't. And, you know, for me, obviously, the the game, at, the League Cup game at uh, Tynecastle, I think loads of Saints fans went to that thinking we could win it. There was a huge support, and we got absolutely gubbed. It was an awful day. Um, so then when we got Aberdeen at Ibrox in the, league, the Scottish Cup, there wasn't a big Saints support. There was probably about eight, eight or 900. Um, and... Again, you know, we went down 1-0 uh, in the first half. Um, again, what really what made it more pleasurable was the whole first half, the Aberdeen fans sang, who the fuck is Stevie May? Yeah. Who the fuck is Stevie May? All the way through it. And as the game went on, you just went... And I would imagine Stevie May must have heard that as well. Yeah. And I don't think he'd scored against Aberdeen at that point. And... As soon as, you know, the ball came to Stephen May in the second half, you thought, this is, he's going to score here. And from the moment he scored the first, you knew. And it was at that point when, the, you know, people started to talk about the May 17 on his shirt. You know, the finals on the 17th of May, it won all. And then you're going, if he scores again, and of course he did. Um, and yeah, I think Aberdeen probably did throw that game away. But as a Saints fan, Winning the semi-final felt like winning the cup because yeah. I think just the break, the hoodoo of getting to the final was was such a big deal. And for me personally, I, I actually felt just to get to the final was good enough. Just to be for the first time ever in my life in May to be going to a Scottish Cup final was that that was enough. Um, and the way things worked out, the fact it was done United, you suddenly went, oh god, Saints went into the game not as underdogs. Yeah. Because we'd beaten United like four times that season. Um, and that was quite bad. I, I always wanted to be the underdog. I don't want to be like the big team. Uh, but it just, everything went to plan. I remember the week, 
<laughs> the week of the game, the week before it, I went to a sponsor, a player at Saints, and there was a kind of sponsor's afternoon. We went to go and watch Saints train, and I sat next to Tommy Wright. We'd like sandwiches and there was a chat and stuff afterwards. And I was telling Tommy Wright how nervous I was. I was terrified. And just as he left, he put his arm around me and he went, son, don't worry. We're going to win it. Trust me. And of course, I was like, yes, Tommy, yes, Tommy. And you could tell those, see, when I walked away, I thought, it was psychology. He just knew, he knew that they were going to win. And obviously, he was saying that to the players. And, you know, I think, talking about Danny Boyle in psychology, that was one of Tommy Wright's great strengths, I think. Mm-hmm. He's a manager you would want to play for. He's a manager you wouldn't want to cross. But I think that kind of Fergie, you know, you know, he's that sort of style. And uh, yeah, so it was it was, too, it was so easy, the cup final. Yeah, I, there's no, apart from Chiffy hitting the bar referee kick, I think St. John's were pretty much the better team in that game. There's no question about it. I, well, was, deli- yeah, I was delighted for you that you won, not because it was Dundee United you were up against, but because you'd beaten us in the semi final. Because I've, I quite like St. Johnston. Um, yeah. I really wanted them to, to go and do it. So I'm, I'm glad that you did. So um, just, just sum up what the day, uh, that day, um, you know, what, um, at Celtic Park. It was just, you know, as a. As a football fan, I think, uh, or a, as a, a sports fan, I've only tr- tried twice at sport, and once was Andy Murray winning Wimbledon, and the other time was Saints winning the Cup, because both are things that I genuinely thought I would never see. Like, you know, I th- we could maybe scrape a League Cup, but I genuinely thought we would never win the Scottish Cup, and I never thought someone from Dunblane would win Wimbledon. So <laughs> to see those things in my lifetime were, were magnificent. Uh, and just to be there with friends and family, eh, for it to all go right for a change, eh, for us to win convincingly, for the fact that there was an incident and Stevie May scored a goal with a handball, and I panicked because I thought, see if that goal's given, and we win 2-1. And forever we were going to be the team that won the cup with a dodgy goal. So that was eh, ruled out, and then we went ahead and scored it. So it all worked out. There was no negatives about it. Eh, you know, people say, ah, but it wasn't at Hamden, but does, I, that, that doesn't matter to me. I don't think Hamden's a very good stadium. I think Parkhead's a better atmosphere. Um, ideally, it would have been at Hamden just for the, the history, but I'll accept Parkhead any day as long as we win it. Yeah, I'm the same. I mean, we, um, as some of both going to come, both our teams won something um, at Celtic Park that season. Trust me, I enjoyed it. Although, I'll be honest, I enjoyed the, the, there was an Aberdeen St. Johnson game at the end of the next season. St. Johnson went again to Europe, and the St. Johnson fans oh, came out with the, the, yeah, and uh, you just came out with the, the chant, um, you won the Diddy Cup, we won the Scottish Cup. I thought that was quite funny. Yeah, yeah, I was at that. Chris Kane came on and scored. Yeah. I, was, I was up at Pritchard for that. It was, it was a good game. Shaughnessy, it was just before Shaughnessy left Aberdeen for Saints. And he, Shaughnessy was rubbish that day. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, that was a nice, it was nice driving back after winning that. Um, but yeah, I, I feel like you, I, I like to see Aberdeen doing well. I think, you know, in as much as I enjoyed knocking you out of the cup and stuffing it up, Dundee United, I would rather Dundee United than Aberdeen did better than Hibs or Hearts or Celtic or Rangers. You know, you know there, there is an affinity, I think, between the regional clubs like Aberdeen and Saints and then United, you know, yeah. we were never in this, the part of the new firm, but, you know, growing up in the 80s, it was fantastic to see Aberdeen and Dundee United doing so well. 
And, you know, I certainly cheered those teams on in cup finals in Europe, you know, when they were playing against Old Farm or playing against Real Madrid. You, you wanted your local team, your more local team to do well. Yeah, definitely. Um, I want to see, when it comes to Europe, I even want um, Celtic Rangers to do well, just not domestically. Um, yeah, but, same as you. Yeah, yeah, of course, in Europe, you want any Scottish team to do well. Aye. But, yeah, I think, I, th- I think there's a nice, with most clubs in Scotland, there's a nice mutual respect um, with certain ones which I wouldn't name on here but um, I think it's it's good that fans of other clubs can mix together and um, you know just chew the fat over football I mean because that's what we all have yeah. one love at the end of the day and that's football yeah. might just different colours of t-shirts and stuff but yeah. Um, but yeah before I move on to like the quite fair questions um, obviously Tom, Tommy Wright um, best in Johnson manager ever in my life um, that that goes without saying in my, my opinion um, he's now gone do you how do you think things are going to go under Callum Davis? I mean, the last couple of results have not been great. Um, they've been in games, but they've always come off with a 1-0 defeat. Do you fear for them yeah. this season? Uh, I was very happy for Tom, uh, for uh, Callum to get the job. I think he was a natural successor. I think mm-hmm. uh, working under Tommy, being a, a local boy, being someone who's played twice for Saints and with connections to England. and um, You know, I think he was the right person for it. You know, we struggled last season, but, you know, we were bottom of the league in December the 15th and we ended up in top six, so it is a long season. I think, as you say, we've lost like four games, Um, Mm 1-0, and in most of those games, we've almost dominated, and certainly, even with our Dean game, we should have at least got a draw. Um, You know, That game where they got football stopped, that was a dreadful game. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, I think... Uh, again, if we could get, if we could put the ball in the the net a bit more, if we could get, I don't know if we need a striker or what. Um, I'm not panicking at the moment. Um, I think I don't think we'll be top six, but I think we should be okay. I think I look at the other teams that are struggling, and again, we we are going through a, like last season, we had a bad patch at the start of the season. We tend to come onto a game, and then we go on a run of maybe five or six games without losing. And we can be up four or five places. So, yeah, I'm, I'm happy with Calum Davidson. I was gutted when Tommy left. I think in some ways it was probably the right decision for him. I think he was becoming frustrated with um, how much he could achieve. With I don't think he got the recognition he deserved. Um, I don't think he could have done any more. Um, I think, uh, you know, with the signing of Stevie May, the, the chairman didn't go about things the right way because we ended up buying them at the end of the, end of the day. So we should have just got them and saved six weeks fanning about. Um, but yeah, Tommy Wright's the greatest I've ever seen George the manager. People say Willie Ormond and stuff, but you know, to win a national cup, to finish top six, five years out of seven, to get into Europe four times, um, there's no comparison to that. No, I totally agree. And the fact that, um, and I mean this with the greatest respect, but um, the fact that St. John's have been a Premier League side for, for 10, 11 years now, and he's been in charge for seven of them. Yeah. No, I, I don't think yeah. his record can be disputed. And I, I remember guys, Ali Totten and Paul Sturrock, to a degree, um, they were decent managers, but tell me, right, it's a different kettle of fish for me. And I can't I believe he's not got a job yet. Northern Ireland should have took him on, in my opinion. Yeah, and I, and I, I think reading between the lines, I think probably... Tommy thought he was maybe another good shout for. It. I think he, I think he left Saints because it made he, it meant he was a free agent. There was going to be no compensation. It would have made that an easy job for him to get. He could have started straight away. 
Um, I'm surprised they went for Barraclough over him. Me too. I think Tommy's shown he's, he's a, a far bigger, you know, he's won bigger trophies and managed at a better level. I think there's an unfashionableness to him, I think, because he was a goalie. I think because he seems like he's older than he is. He's like an old guy. I think I look at the managers in that time, whether it was Hartley, whether it was uh, Robbie Nielsen and Jack Ross, players that managers that achieved nothing compared to what he achieved, walked down south and got jobs. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Alan Stubbs, John Hughes. I don't understand why Tommy Wright's not had a sniff of anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. He's better than the lot of them. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I would say so. And I like John Hughes. You know, John Hughes. Um, we had on our podcast a few months ago. He was interested in the Saints' job at this point, but obviously, yeah, like looking to go to Callum. Um, yeah. and John Hughes has done well um, with Inverness, for example. But yeah, Tommy Knight. Um, how he's not had a job. Yeah, down, no, down, I'm, down, not, I don't, I'm not disrespecting those managers. No, I know you're not. I know. If if Robbie Nielsen has achieved what Tommy Wright achieved, you know, he'd have been hailed as this, you know. Yeah, great manager, but Tommy, it was just, it was just all old Tommy. Oh, he's a, oh, he's a bit of a carrot, you know. Uh, I just don't think he was ever given the respect or treated seriously enough. Yep, I, t- I totally agree with that. Yeah, um, I'm sure. Hopefully, he'll get in a job soon because I think he's a big, he'll be a big Mister Football. So hopefully, yeah. he'll get in a job soon. I wouldn't so, be surprised to see him. I wouldn't be surprised with him going to Aberdeen. After McInnes, that'll be interesting. But yeah, I think it's. I think I wouldn't rule that one out. Yeah, I wouldn't Some be against point. that. I wouldn't. I wouldn't be yeah. against that's been linked quite a number of times. Um, we'll just need to wait yeah. and see. Um, we've heard it here first. <laughs> if it does happen, yeah. <laughs> right. So I'll, I'll wrap. I'll wrap things up. Um, around the well, we call it, we call it slow fire questions because um, <laughs> it takes us so long to get through them. But um, so, um, what's your favourite beer or wine? Favourite beer at the moment is probably Innocent Gun, Craft Lager, and favourite wine is Any Red. Any Red, excellent. Um, I usually ask uh, footballers what their favourite um, prank was, um, so have you been involved in any onset ones at Tiger or anywhere? Uh, yeah, but it was one that I did, which was actually, it worked out quite well. Uh, there was a scene we were doing and uh, I had to walk on. It was, it was a girl, Leslie Harcourt, she played like the kind of sexy uh, pathologist and I had to go on to the, into her kind of, like when she was doing a dead body and she was to crack a joke and go, like she looked, looked up at me and goes, like, I'm all ears. And I think the joke was me having like big ears uh, or you're all ears, I can't remember. So I had a pair of fake ears. So in like the third take, we, I walked on with the big ears on uh, in the scene and she looked up and I had the big ears and obviously they filmed it and uh, it ended up going into like, it must have been in a bloopers thing, so it actually ended up on, it'll be alright in the night <laughs> when Dennis Norton was still, it must have been one of the last mm. years Dennis Norton, so yeah, it got me on to it'll be alright in the night so that was a bit of a claim to fame for me to get on that. and I got 300 quid or something so even better Ah, nice. <laughs> oh, that prank was definitely worth it then. Yeah. Um, so apart from, apart from your own wife, who'd be your ideal on-screen wife? Uh, Scarlett Johansson. Good choice. Uh, what, what, what would you? What would be your favourite album to listen to in the car or anywhere? Oh, favourite of all time. That's too hard. Um, Even just something at the moment that you can think of. 
I'll go for an album that means quite a lot. I would say, uh, Is This It by The Strokes. Excellent. I love that album. Another good choice. Um, apart, apart from obviously McDermott um, Park, um, what's the favourite football ground you've visited? See, I'm a sucker for the old, old stadiums. So I love a wee trip to Starks Park. Uh, I love a trip to, to Capolo. You know, the old kind of, you know, the way football used to be. Um, I also, been to Stade de France, love that. Uh, Anfield's pretty good. I like going, I, I, you know, a bit like train spot. I, I like going to any ground. I like sort of ticking it off my box, uh, the ones that I've seen. So, yeah. The skill, any mode, smart remote, can oh, that's remote. A, Alexa, come on. Alexa, stop. <laughs> Sorry about that. That's uh, yeah, right. I'll say Starks Park. Yeah, I'll not put that in any bloopers. Um, yeah. Apart, um, so final question. I do this well, my guess. Um, I can't remember if I warned you or not. Um, name a best and joints eleven from your lifetime. We know who the manager is, but what's your best eleven? Uh, I'll go for Alan Main, uh, who was at one point the all-time appearances, uh, two spells at Saints. So I'll go Alan Main. I'll go with Captain Dave Mackay, who. Led us to our first national trophy. Yeah. Um, I'll go with Callum Davidson because again, sold him for like 1.75 million. Scottish international when it's become a manager. Uh, two centre halves. Um, I'd have to go for Ando, Stephen Anderson. Uh, current most appearances for Saints, scored in a cup final. Uh, stick Ando in. Um, Again, it's hard seen past the cup final team. Big Fraser Wright. Yeah, he's uh, solid. <laughs> solid. So, yeah, stick with Fraser. Midfield, I'll stick in Jim Morton from uh, when I grew up as a boy. Uh, pleasure, Winston Hall of Fame. And uh, I got to present him with his award. And he was with, that night, he was with an Aberdeen legend, Billy Garner, who's his, his best mate. So I got to meet Willie Garner as well, which was good. So yeah. Jim Morton, um, what other midfielders? Paul Sheeran, yeah. great player for us. Underrated player, one of the best midfielders I've ever seen. Willie yeah. um, Garner's a great guy. Um, he was my manager in a charity game. Um, and he's, he was supposed to be managing a charity game this year, but we had to cancel it because of COVID. Um, so I'm glad you've mentioned him. Yeah, so I'll give really- him a shout out for you. Yeah, really nice guy. Really lovely to meet him. Yes. Um, so that's two midfielders I've put in. Um, let's think. See, I've done this before and I'm trying to write my brains as to who I put in it. Obviously, I think it was before the Scottish Cup. Um, I'll go a player from the 90s. The great national was John O'Neill. John O'Neill, yeah. Yeah, John O'Neill, great player. Dell Boys, who was called at Saints. And then I'm going to go for three up front. Uh, Roddy Grant. He was a striker. Trademark legend for Saints. You know, played with us twice. Uh, probably wasn't the best player, but could certainly put the ball in the back of the net. Uh, Stevie May. Yeah. Uh, for again, for the fact he scored like 28 goals for us in one season, he's a local boy and he scored the two goals that got us to the Scottish Cup final. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll edit that about. 
Yeah, sorry. And then I'll go for a. It's a toss up between McCoyst and Brogan because they were a a great double act, but based on the career that Super Ali went to have, uh, both on football and on TV, uh, for his infectious uh, manner, uh, and again he knew how to get the ball in the net, I'd go for uh, Super Ali up front. Yeah, that's a that is a pretty strong side. Um, but listen, thank you very much for your time, Colin. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, Thanks, you're without, you're the first actor that we've had on as a guest, and yeah, um, we'd love to have you on again at some point. But all the best Thanks. with um, everything. Hope um, everything works out. Excellent. Thanks a lot for having me. It was great fun. Right, take care. Thanks. Cheers. <laughs>